Welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your host, Eddie Rye. Uh, we have a number of folks we're going to talk with today, and they're all candidates. And uh, for the record, I want to let everybody know that all their opponents did receive an invitation in a timely fashion uh, to participate in the program that we had from October 1st through the 20th. I had the 30th, but through the 29th. So I want to set the record straight right off the bat. Uh, my first guest is uh, the distinguished congressman from my congressional district, the 9th Congressional District, who is chair of the House Armed Services Committee. And I think he even grew up in the district, but his name is Congressman Adam Smith. And welcome to Urban Forum Northwest, Congressman Smith. We're pleased that you'll be able to take some time out. Can you work some magic for Tuesday? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Yes, I, I grew up in SeaTac, actually, so South King County, um, the 9th District. Yes, we all got our fingers crossed for Tuesday. I, I, you know, from my perspective as a, as a progressive Democrat, I think things are going really well. Uh, turnout is there. The numbers look good, but it's not over till it's over. And uh, uh, like I indicated to everybody, I also invited uh, your, your opponent. So I have no problems with talking about your re-election. But why don't you just share with our listeners a little bit about your background? You've been on before, but we have new listeners all the time. As a matter of sure. fact, we have some CBC members listening as well. So why don't you just share with our listeners a little bit about your background and then go into your daily duties in the House? Sure. Yeah, no, as I mentioned, I grew up in SeaTac. My father actually worked out at the airport. He worked for United Airlines as a ramp serviceman. Um, and so I've lived my entire life in the district, um, graduated from Taiyi High School um, down South King County and uh, then graduated from UW Law School and was elected to the state Senate to represent that area when I was 25, right out of law school and Congress six years after that. Uh, and I've you know, lived in the district my entire life, SeaTac, and lived in Kent for seven years, lived in Tacoma for 13 years and been in Bellevue for the last eight. Um, so pretty strong connection to the district. Uh, and as Eddie mentioned, I'm now the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. And I think the other thing that's really crucial is the diversity in this district. Um, and my office and I work really hard to represent everybody in the district. Um, we speak over 160 different languages in the 9th District. We've got people from, from all over the world and also from all points on the political spectrum. And I want to make sure that their voices are heard and included in the political process. That's, that's the way representative democracy is supposed to work. So day in and day out, uh, meeting with people these days, as we all are, uh, it tends to be on computer. Um, I do get out occasionally for events here and there. Uh, but mostly it's a matter of working with my staff to make sure I stay in touch uh, and then working on the legislative side uh, to translate what I hear from my constituents into legislation and activity uh, back in Washington, D.C. And, and in Washington, D.C., uh, your committee probably has the largest budget of any other federal agency. And why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about the House Armed Services Committee? Sure, yeah. Now we, um, we exercise oversight over the Department of Defense. Um, that's our primary duty. Um, you know, we also authorize the spending at the Pentagon. Now there is an appropriations committee and a budget committee that set what that spending is and appropriate the money. But our primary duty is to exercise oversight on how that money gets spent. So every year we pass the National Defense Authorizing Bill, which tends to authorize the amount of money that the appropriators appropriate. Uh, but then we exercise all manner of different oversight. I mean, this year, you know, we're particularly focused on diversity. Um, and, you know, I've worked with a member of the Black Caucus, actually, Anthony Brown, who's the vice chair of the committee, um, to develop legislation to create an inspector general 
uh, to make sure that promotions and hiring within DOD um, are respecting diversity and are being fair and inclusive. Um, we're also looking at the UCMJ, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice, to make sure that it's fair as well. So that's a big part of our oversight this time. We're also trying to get the Pentagon to the place where they can do a full audit uh, so they know where they're spending their money and a whole bunch of issues. But every year we, we pass that bill, and that bill's in conference right now. Um, and you know, I'm trying to work with the Senate. Um, Mitch McConnell and Jim Inhofe is the Senate chair of the Armed Services Committee. Uh, to get a bill done and make sure that we properly exercise oversight of DOD. And, you know, as a former contractor uh, 20 years ago, my company was Traction Systems Incorporated. Uh, we were a service contractor, and we received a, a, a Captain Edward Ney Award uh, three consecutive years. It would have won it the fourth year at, uh, at Whidbey uh, Naval Air Station, but they had to uh, renovate the kitchen. And do you realize that after winning that and having a picture with, uh, uh, and they, they had the award ceremony in, in, in uh, uh, Death Valley uh, in August. But anyway, uh, our company could not never get a, another contract. And, you know, we had people that knew other folks in the contracting office. We'd always be in the top three. And I can recall uh, a uh, one person, I had, I had a business relationship with the, Filipino-owned uh, uh, restaurant and the family that owned the restaurant. We did a contract down there, and uh, it, it, it was in, in, in the Navy in San Diego. And the, uh, the food service officer, who was a white male, said, "Oh, these N words have too much already, and that stuff is still in there, and that it just ingrained in the military." Uh, and that's been my experience. And no matter what kind of job you do, you can never get another contract. And the only way we got contracts was through the SBA 8A set-aside program. Because when you're at the mercy of a prime contractor, you're at the mercy. And believe me, that's why we haven't seen a lot of African-American-owned businesses flourishing because of the, the racial discrimination and the anti-Black discrimination that we face. A lot more than other folks. And a lot of other uh, people of color have access to money from abroad and other places. So uh, they didn't have the 400 years that we had here of the segregation and degradation. As a matter of fact, I had to remind some people recently that uh, other minorities would be riding on the front of the bus and drinking out the white man's waterfront in Louisiana, where I'm from. So our, our American experience is completely different than everybody else's. While I admire and respect the efforts of everyone else, people really uh, pay little attention to the fact that we've been here 400 years and every time there's a program for people of color, minorities, blacks end up at the back of the line. So I think we have to give that some consideration as well. Well, there, yeah, there are two, two major issues that you raise there. And clearly the biggest one is the systemic racism that has existed in our country and continues to exist um, in, in general and specifically against black people. I think you really have to, to read the history of slavery, of Jim Crow, of white supremacy, to appreciate um, the depth of the systemic racism in this country and the degree to which it was specifically targeted at African Americans. Now, you know, we've started to, you know, at least have that conversation, uh, but there's so much more needs to be done to understand that and to correct it. You know, and you know, part of it is it hasn't gone away, as we've seen in Charlottesville and elsewhere. Um, with this president basically given the dog whistle approval. And sometimes he doesn't even, it's not even a dog whistle. It's just a whistle. Um, <laughs> You're right about that. It says, you know, that, you know, the, the, he, he speaks to people who believe in white supremacy and racism in a way that has exacerbated the problem. 
But even when you get past that and you get to people who say, well, I'm not racist. Okay, well, you know, what's your business? Who do you hire? Well, I just hire the people I know, and the people I know just happen to all be white. Um, You know, we have to affirmatively work to include uh, everyone in our society, and particularly people who have suffered historic discrimination. Because if you just keep things where they're at, then the biases that were put in place don't go away. That's why I think it's, you know, that's why I've supported Initiative 1000. Uh, the affirmative action proposals to make sure that we are more inclusive. So the systemic racism is one issue, but a second issue at the Pentagon is the fact that they don't do a good enough job reaching out to small businesses. They tend to rely on large contractors, on incumbents, on contractors who have been there. Um, and in so doing, they, they freeze out a lot of small local businesses. And also, by the way, they miss out on a ton of great innovation and great companies who have high-quality goods and services that could give the taxpayer a better deal um, that they don't see um, because they're simply going with the larger companies. So we have to do both. We have to attack systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And at DOD and elsewhere, we have to make sure that they're reaching out and finding companies that aren't just the ones that they've been doing business with forever. Uh, Both of those things. Major well, I just want to ask you, um, in terms of uh, uh, the Supreme Court, we know uh, what's happened there, and apparently uh, the Constitution does not limit the number of justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, if uh, the Dems take the White House, the Senate, and maintain the House, do you see any possibility of uh, the Dems making a move to uh, balance the court out? Yeah, well, I, you know, I would not take that off the table. I think, you know, I know the answer that, you know, Vice President Biden has given is that, you know, we've got some real problems with our courts um, on a whole series of issues. And he wants a commission to take a look at it and say, what are the options uh, for getting courts that are more, more representative of where the people are at right now? And in that answer, he did not take the option that you just described off the table. And look, as 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 your listeners and, and black people in general know better than most, the founding fathers were not actually perfect. Um, everything they put into that document, um, as revolutionary as it was at the time, was not necessarily the absolute right answer. Um, you know, certainly with the the position on slavery being the most egregious example. But even on the courts, why do they have lifetime appointments? It's the only country in the world that I've ever heard of and I've researched, I'm pretty sure it's the only country in the world that gives lifetime appointments to judges. So yeah, someone who's like 40 years old, they're there for 40 years. Um, hmm. You know, that, that is not really representative of the country. So I believe that our courts right now, and, you know, in, in particular, when you get to those diversity issues, when you're talking about, you know, the history of, you know, systemic racism in our country, if you've got lifetime judges, well, then you're freezing out a ton of people. Um, so I think we need to seriously look at how to make sure that the courts are representative. I mean, the Republicans, not the Republicans, just the, the far-right conservatives for decades now have had a project to try to get their far-right extremist conservative justices um, on every court you can imagine. And it's been largely successful. And I think, well, a number of issues, voting rights. I mean, look at the decisions that are going down as we speak. You know, down in Texas, they're saying it's okay to only have one drop box per county. You know, they're actively stopping people from being able to vote. Voter suppression is horrific all across this country, 
and we've got all these judges that are backing up those decisions, I think, in direct contradiction to the law in the United States Constitution just because they're pushing an ideological agenda. So, yeah, that needs to be addressed, and I would not take that option off the table. Well, Congressman Adam Smith, I want to thank you for your time today. Wish you all the success in the world on Tuesday, and keep up the good job and stay in touch with our community. We do appreciate your leadership. So we'll be speaking with you soon. I voted already, and I did cast a ballot for you. Okay, so thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks for your leadership in our community. I always enjoy working with you. I look forward to continuing to do so. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Okay, my next guest is the former Tacoma mayor of uh, two terms, eight years, uh, Marilyn Strickland, who is a candidate for uh, the U.S. Congress in the 10th Congressional District, right adjacent to uh, Adam Smith's district. Uh, Marilyn Strickland, how are you doing today? I am fine. How are you today, Eddie? I'm just doing great. So why don't you take a couple of minutes and share a little bit about your background on uh, uh, what your experience has been in government? so that our listeners have an understanding. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show, and hello to all the listeners. So my name is Marilyn Strickland, and I am a candidate for the 10th Congressional District of Washington State, which is the South Puget Sound, and that encompasses parts of Mason County, most of Thurston County, and most of Pierce County. And if elected to Congress, I will serve as the first African-American member of the Washington State Delegation and the first African-American to represent the Pacific Northwest, as well as the first Korean-American woman to serve in Congress in U.S. history. Uh, My background is that I'm a graduate of the University of Washington. I also have a master's degree from Clark Atlanta University, and I served as mayor of Tacoma for two terms. And then after that, I was the CEO of the Seattle Metropolitan Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, running for Congress is something that is the opportunity to run for Congress does not come up very often because people tend to stay in office for a long time, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when Denny Hex surprised everyone and said he was not seeking re-election back in December, I started receiving phone calls and had a really you know long conversation with my family and my friends and really thought about the changes that are happening in our community up and down the I-5 corridor, the growth that's happening, and really making sure that We are not leaving people behind. And so, you know, that's the why of why I'm running. I'm also running for Congress because this administration is rolling back rights that we have fought for for too long. That civil rights, voting rights, women's rights, human rights, environmental protections, all these things that are going backwards. And so as I think about the task in front of us, it is done with the backdrop of knowing that we need to restore our rights, but we also have to understand that we are in the middle of a pandemic an economic crisis, and really the amplification of racial injustice and how we're going to deal with those at the federal, state, and local level. And what, what, are, what, are your, what is your current feelings about where we are right now, and how long do you think it's going to take to change this divided country? Because we are, it's a definite division. There's no question about it. Who's on yeah. one side, who's on the other? But it would seem to me some of the people on the other side would think about, wow, I have the Affordable Care Act, but I guess they don't like it because uh, Trump calls it the Obamacare Act. But anyway, uh, just to comment on that, please. Yeah, you know, if you think about the divisions of this country, that was set into motion even before Barack Obama became president. But if you look at the evolution of politics and how we engage with each other or how we don't, for lack of a better term, if you look at the way the um, current president has given people permission 
to be overtly bigoted and prejudiced and racist, you clearly see that things have changed. And so as we think about how we get this nation back on track, I'd say a few things are really important, Eddie. Number one, you know, we have a pandemic happening right now. And because we did not have leadership at the federal level from the president to treat this as a national crisis and do the things we had to do, here we are 10 months later and we're still deep into it. And so the first thing I would want to do is look at this COVID crisis and work with the new administration and my congressional colleagues to come up with a national strategy. And that's everything from manufacturing the equipment that we need here at home in the U.S. It's making testing available, contact tracing, all the things to get this under control. And I say this, Eddie, because until we get this pandemic under control, we are not going to have a full and sustainable economic recovery. And the example that I use is right here in our backyard. Washington State depends a lot on tourism, and that means people are not getting on planes to travel. It means that they are not coming here to this amazing place that we call home to stay in hotels, to eat in restaurants, to attend events, go to concerts, sporting events, you name it. And so much of our economy depends on people feeling safe and feeling comfortable to show up. Our kids are not in school because families cannot say that we can send kids back to school safely. And so the pandemic and getting better under control has to be our top priority. The other thing that COVID has done too is that it has amplified the inequities that have been in our society for a long time. And that is everything from housing, access to health care, education. I mean, Eddie, look at the number of kids who you hear about who don't have high-speed internet at home and how that affects their ability to participate in online learning. And so, you know, as we think again about what we have to do, the focus has to be on getting this pandemic under control and then addressing some of these inequities that have been around for a long time. And then, of course, we have to deal with the criminal justice system and just some of the tragic things that we're seeing happening with policing and that are happening in real time because people have phones now and they're recording it. Yeah, that's true. Before a long time, you know, whatever the police said was was the law of the land, and now we have uh, we have the cameras out. So, yeah. uh, what? Uh, so, as a fresh a, a freshman in in Congress, what would your priorities be, and what committee assignments would you seek out? Yeah, so you know, whenever you think about committee assignments, you have to understand that there is a hierarchy that happens pretty much based on seniority and what leadership decides where they want to put you. And so, of course, you always want to be on committees that are going to benefit your district because that is always your priority. And so, as I think about the 10th congressional district, Eddie, I think about you know the housing challenges we have and the housing affordability crisis is up and down the I-5 corridor, and it's happening in cities across the country and regions across the country, but we know we need to build more housing. So the House Finance Committee would be interesting to me because they have oversight of HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Department, and that's where you often get funds and activities to try to help build more affordable housing. The other committee that interests me is the um, Transportation and Infrastructure, and that is a topic that doesn't sound sexy or interesting, but if you think about all the things that we need to do, especially to put this economy back on track and put people to work, it often comes down to infrastructure, Re reconstructing bridges, investing in mass transit, upgrading our clean energy grid so that we have a greener economy, and even doing something like looking at broadband as an essential utility, the way we treat water and power. And so those are things that will put people back to work. They will improve the quality of life. And in some cases, you know, they can address some of these issues of equity as well. And then the final committee that would interest me, you know, depending on how things fall out with my first or second choices, would be the House Foreign Affairs Committee, just because we have Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which is the largest military base on the West Coast. 
We have important trade relationships around the world, and we just need to restore our standing around the world as a leader. And that is of great interest to me, especially because of my Korean-American background and what happens on the Korean Peninsula and how we can you know, promote peace and prosperity and strengthen U.S. relations. That's very good. Now, what about uh, any guarantees that uh, African descendants of the United States and slaves will participate in government contracting? Because uh, every time it's something for minorities or people of color, blacks, and I raised the same question to Adam Smith a minute ago, blacks end up at the back of the line with the, with the empty buckets. So is there going to be any guarantee that we can get some equity? You know, Eddie, we've been having this conversation for 25 years, right? whether it's here at home at the state level or even the federal level. And so we know that, you know, by law, federal contracts are supposed to have allowances for minority and women-owned businesses, especially African-American businesses. And so as I think about the opportunity to make these massive infrastructure investments, we know we have to be very intentional. And let me just um, stay with me on this one, because when we had the first set of relief funds, come to local communities, we know that a lot of the minority and women-owned businesses did not get any of it. And this was not intentional. It was just that it was a system that was so large and so much was coming in some of these smaller businesses because of their lending relationships didn't get access. And so as we talk about another relief package and doing infrastructure, we have to be very intentional about making sure that we are enforcing the federal rules that say you have to include minority-owned businesses, especially African-American contractors. So I think that there's a conversation about enforcement, but a lot of it, too, you know this, is about relationships and just being at the table. And so I am ready to go to work to do that at the federal level, but understanding, too, that, you know, there's some challenges we have here at the state and the local level. We know that, you know, during the last election, Eddie, I-1000 barely failed. And yeah. as we think about the opportunities moving forward, I, you know, I wonder if I-1000 had been on the ballot this year in this cycle with the amplification mm -hmm. of racial injustice, would it have had a better chance of passing? And so I think that there's some things we can do to work together at the local, mm -hmm. state, and federal level, but I'm ready to do that work. You know, it's amazing that uh, white males receive uh, 95 to 97 percent of the state contracts, and that's not discrimination. It's absolutely amazing, uh, and it's been going on forever. And, well, and then and, and on the also, federal level, on the yep. federal level, white women are included as disadvantaged business enterprises. And if you check the Washington State Department of Transportation, they were receiving up until a year ago probably eighty to ninety percent of the total pack, of, of 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 the whole pie. So and, and see once again, and we know that four white female-owned uh, trucking firms had a hundred trucks, but ninety-nine of the drivers were white men. So the program is supposed to be about engaging people and employing people who've been traditionally left out. But when it comes to some people, it doesn't matter. So that was just a point that I wanted to make. But uh, I really do appreciate uh, what you're doing. Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, you extend to higher heights. And I look forward to talking with you very in the very near future. So is there anything you'd like to say in closing, uh, Marilyn? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show, Eddie, and thank you for all the work you have done for our community over the years and the decades. And to our listening audience, we have to vote. And, you know, there are efforts happening around the country to suppress the vote. But here in Washington state, it's a matter of filling out your ballot. And I will say because of where we are with five days out, get that ballot filled out and take it to a voting station where you can actually drop it off in a drop box. Do not wait for the U.S. Postal Service. 
drop it off at a drop box. But please remember to vote because every vote does count. Every vote does matter. And we want to make sure that we have the change that we desperately need in this country to move us forward. Marilyn Strickland, thank you very much for your time and your leadership in the area. We appreciate what you're doing. All right. So thank, thank you, you very Eddie. much. Okay. Okay, Eric, we're going to take a quick break and come back with our next guest after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxshops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington, or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Bored with the other stations? Hammering away on the same old talking points? Try Alternative Talk 1150 and get some variety. Eddie Ryan back at Urban Forum Northwest, and I guess uh, Saturday is Halloween, so happy Halloween to everybody. Be safe when you get out there. My next guest is uh, Jamila Taylor, who is a candidate for the Washington State uh, House in uh, Legislative District number 30 and as position one. Uh, Jamila, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest, and why don't you take a couple of minutes to share a little bit about your background with our listening audience. Thank you so much for having me today. Yes, my name is Jamila Taylor, and I'm running for state rep in the 30th district, which is um, South King County and um, a little bit of uh, North Pierce County. Um, and it's basically federal way, parts of Algona, Pacific, Milton, um, parts of Auburn, parts of Des Moines, and some parts of unincorporated King County. Um, but about me, uh, I'm an attorney, small business owner, and longtime community advocate. I've dedicated my career and years of community involvement to serving diverse populations. I'm also the former statewide advocacy counsel for Northwest Justice Project, and I managed a network of legal aid attorneys assisting domestic violence survivors and other crime victims. I've worked regionally on youth violence intervention programs such as the youth, uh, Seattle Youth Violence Prevention Initiative and other crime reduction efforts. 
My leadership expands, uh, leadership experience spans more than 20 years and ranges from policymaking all the way to program evaluation. I know how the work gets done for the benefit of community. And as we rebuild our post-COVID-19 um, economic recovery, we need progressive champions who know what it's like to manage public funds during difficult times and who can understand the experience of residents facing difficult decisions in their daily lives. Like many in the 30th district, I felt the pain of wondering how my business and my family will get through COVID-19. Um, about me specifically, I'm a daughter and a sister, and I share a household with my mom and my twin brother who both have chronic illnesses. In fact, both are on kidney dialysis. Navigating mm -hmm. the medical health care system is a constant in our family. When I first moved to the King County area, I experienced the struggle to find and keep affordable housing. I had moved seven times in six years before finally landing into my wonderful home in Federal Way. And so we need to make sure that we have leaders in Olympia who are committed to addressing our shared concerns about the economic recovery, the long-standing issues around homelessness, affordable housing, public safety, criminal justice reform, public transportation, health care, and then equities through all of that. COVID-19 exposed serious safety net gaps many of us already knew existed. And we saw how those inequities in so many systems from healthcare, access, education, and small business recovery affected everyone and our whole community. But we also need leaders to, who are committed to giving residents whose future was interrupted by the pandemic hope and opportunity. And I'm proud of the experience and perspective that reflects my deep commitment to public service and the positive change that works for the entire community, the whole community. Uh, have you uh, done any research to see uh, the level of participation of uh, African descendants from the United States enslaved are doing with the, the uh, Washington State? Can you rephrase the question? What, what, what no, I want, I want to know. I I'm specifically want to know about African descendants of the United States enslaved because of the fact that uh -huh. when we say all minorities and people of color, oftentimes we're left out, and I'm not ashamed to say it. The numbers don't lie. And I was just curious mm -hmm. because uh, I, I just raised that question a, a little while ago with, uh, with uh, Marilyn Strickland, is that oftentimes mm -hmm. when we have programs that's meant for everybody else, blacks end up at the, at the back of the, of the line. And I was just curious, if you look at the numbers in Washington mm -hmm. state, uh, white males mm -hmm. receive between 95 and 97% of the contracts, but yet that's not discrimination. But uh, once again, you know, there's been no affirmative action in the state for 21 years which means mm -hmm. that discrimination is legalized. And as an attorney, I want mm -hmm. to know what could you do to level a playing field in that regard? Well, you're asking about a specific uh, um, grouping of black folks. I mean, we have um, African immigrants and then we have- No, 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 I'm very sorry. I said African mm -hmm. descendants of United States enslaved. The ones that's, that's been here 400 I years. I was, I was about to get into that. I was, okay, I, thank I was you. Okay. you know, so one of the things that I um, acknowledge and recognize from my work in the Seattle Youth Violence Prevention Initiative is that the way we capture information about who we're serving is that, um, that, that we haven't disaggregated the information about black folks. And so black folks who are African immigrants, recent immigrants have a different and distinct experience from um, African descendants of slaves. And so what I, I think we need to do is capture the information and making sure that we have advocacy groups who are talking about the distinct and, and historical perspective that 
what um, I think the, the acronym is ADOS uh, individuals uh, are experiencing. So, yes, we need to make sure that in, folks who are part of the, the African descendants of slaves have access to and are able to participate in um, economic recovery at the equitable uh, uh, rate that, that is really to solve for historical wrongs that have been implemented in the past. It's a long way of saying that we got to make sure that we are um, tracking the information and making sure that we have folks, the voices at the table. And, and I have nothing against any other people. I'm a Martin Luther King disciples. I embrace all people. Uh, I'm a humanitarian. But on the other hand, mm -hmm. I would be remiss if I allowed other young black folks to see something, something must be wrong. We're never selected. And it's all because of this anti-black racism. And unfortunately, uh, when we get on, on these agendas, like uh, we're looking right now at the breakdown of uh, votes that's going to be in cash right now, there are a lot of other people of color, like uh, out in, uh, I think that was in uh, Tukwila or somewhere, uh, you had a group of uh, South Vietnamese supporting Trump. Now, uh, I have mm -hmm. relatives that died in Vietnam freeing them, and then they get over here, and they're going to be against our interests. So I'm just saying, if this is going on too long, because like right now we got a lot of lot of splits in other communities of color. They're going they're going for for, for Donald Trump, and so I can't say that you know we are, we're gonna mix me up with all the people of color and half of them are supporting Trump and, and vehemently opposed us and really almost a, a, a adopted an anti-black mentality. So I'm just saying I really think we have to stay focused. Like I said, I embrace all people as a humanitarian, but on the other hand, right. when we come down to political interests. All people of people of color are not supported of African descendants of the United States enslaved. Right, and and I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that uh, we don't want to have um, a divide within the black community where there is a model minority myth. Like the, the I believe that there is some uh, conversation around some folks saying Nigerian Americans are the model minority of African African um, individual black folks. And, and, and I don't think that is helpful. Just like within the Asian community, there are some folks that um, are not able to uh, participate fully in our body politic, who are not able to participate fully in our economic uh, drivers. And so we want to make sure that we're not creating divides amongst folks who have um, similarly situated. So making sure that we have distinct and relevant voices at the table, and, and I don't mean relevant as they, other people are irrelevant, but I, I think we need to make sure that we can create the access to uh, the table to participate. And so one of the things that we need to do is make sure that we're very direct about how we're doing our outreach in the community and um, reaching folks in ways that uh, matches uh, historically uh, what can be done very well for you know, certain segments of the community. Uh, so, so it's a long way of saying we have yeah. a lot of work to do to connect with community. Here, here's one, one, one other example. <clears throat> At the University of Washington, they rebuilt Husky Stadium, $225 million. The black didn't get one dime uh, in business off of that $225 million. But yet, who's running up and down the field making the University of Washington last year $70 million? Unpaid, a number of those players are, un, uh, are, are African Americans. And... Mm -hmm. We turn right back around and tell the University of Washington to say, well, we can no longer allow 
uh, our recruiters to go to historic black colleges and universities and recruit black students to come to our uh, professional schools, our medical school, our dental school. But those black players can generate 50, $70 million for you, but you can't take any of that money and go recruit some blacks because when it comes down to African descent of the United States enslaved and the undergraduate and graduate program, is the numbers are dismal, okay? And so by counting, and somebody said 75% on the undergraduates last year, and I, I can't confirm this, were, were, African student, were African students. They were not African descent of the United States enslaved, but I just think it's totally wrong for those young men to be generating $70 million for the University of Washington, and the University of Washington will have the commitment to spend any of that money to go recruit uh, black students from historic black college universities to take advantage mm -hmm. of these uh, programs. And we realize they love recruiting students from out of the country because they get more money. <clears throat> but right, right that pretty soon they got to uh, understand and accept that black lives matter in every aspect mm -hmm. of that University of Washington and not just playing sports generating millions of dollars for them and not, they're putting nothing back in the black community, not even attempting to put anything back. So I hope you can put that on your radar screen as well. Yeah. I mean, and this is one reason why the Office of Equity at the state level is absolutely critical to um, be able to be a receiver of this information and, and help to implement action steps that can uh, move the needle. Because right now we're all, we have a lot of disparate issues that we can bring to the table and how do we, you know, collect them into a way that there's, you know, tangible action and that ensures that um, folks from the various communities are, are being heard and that they are receiving benefit that they have been uh, excluded from for so very long. Well, I would say take one at a time. If you try to do them all at once, it, it's going to be a long, arduous process. One at a time. University of Washington, okay. I think that uh, uh, Constance Rice and uh, Joanne Harrell are on board the Board of Regents, and I have to get on their next, I'm going to have to get on their next agenda as a member of the NAACP and the Civil Rights Coalition to raise that question with them. They're the decision makers. Okay. You're going to allow these young brothers to make the University of Washington $70 million a year, and you can't go out and use any of that money to go and recruit black students who are graduates of historic black college and universities to come and take advantage of the courses you offer. They have no problem going all over the world get recruiting students because they pay more money. But there has got to be a commitment to African descendants of the United States enslaved. That if, without that, uh, we'll just continue to be second-class citizens in a country that we help build, like my daughter Angela would say, we help build for free. And I think you guys mm -hmm. know each other. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Angela was yes, in do. Flint, Michigan yesterday, and she's in North Carolina today with the uh, Congressional Black Caucus Political Action Committee mm -hmm. trying to get the vote out. Yes, yes. She's doing amazing work to keep the democracy moving in the in the direction that really supports the whole community. And I, I'm so excited about Angela's success and all of the resources that she's bringing to bear in our community. Well, I'm just so happy we got, an, you're going to be having, a, we're going to have an attorney down there that can keep everything straight. So uh, yes. 30, 30th district, you're uh, position one, right? Yes. And my, my hope is to, to join Jesse Johnson, um, uh, he's in position two, and, and we really have a strong delegation with him, myself, and Senator Claire Wilson um, to serve our whole community. And I want to let you know, uh, as I mentioned at the opening of the program, I did invite uh, the opponents for everyone that I've had on the air today. And so if anybody want to complain again, I will send you a copy of their invitation email. 
So I just wanted to make sure I had that squared away as well. So uh, Jamila, thank you very much for your time today and good luck on Tuesday. And hopefully uh, it'll go D, 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 D all the way down the ballot. Yes, thank you so much. Have a great day. Okay, now. So, Eric, why don't we go ahead and take a break now and before we have Representative Jesse Johnson on. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity and Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxhops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill in the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Alternative Talk 1150, local talk for the body, mind, and soul. And before we go to our next guest, I want to let you know that Urban Forum Northwest is brought by your Sound Transit's uh, Labor uh, Compliance and Small Business Office, the Port of Seattle's Minority Contracting Office, the City of Seattle's Purchase and Construction Services Office, Concourse Concessions out of SeaTac, along with SeaTac Bar Group LLC. Stephanie Ogle does our media with Soul Sys Media. And that should be the Sound Transit's Labor and Civil Rights Office. So my next guest is Representative Jesse Johnson uh, from the 30th Legislative District in Washington State, position number two. He has been in office since January 20th of uh, 2020, and uh, he is seeking re-election. So uh, Representative Jesse Johnson, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest. And why don't you take a couple of minutes and share a little bit about your background with our listening audience that's not uh, familiar with you. Uh, thank you so much, Brother Rye, for having me on this, this afternoon. Uh, my name is Jesse Johnson, and I proudly represent the 30th Legislative District in Position 2, uh, which is around Federal Way and surrounding areas. And uh, just a little bit about myself. I'm from the area. I grew up here since I was five years old. Um, went on to get my bachelor's and master's from the University of Washington. I've been a high school, college, and career counselor for the past five to seven years and have worked in uh, racial equity work at the district office. And uh, in 2017, I was happy to uh, run for city council and was able to beat a two-term Republican incumbent to become the youngest city council member in the city of Federal Way's history. 
uh, before this past January being appointed to the legislature. So I'm happy to be here and, and thanks for having me on today. And uh, you also, were you, were you also at Garfield High School? Yes, I worked at Garfield as a, as a high school, college and career counselor for a few years. Yeah, yeah. So we got a lot of things happening with the Seattle Public School District, which I will not go into right now. But uh, the last term that you served in, give our, our listeners some kind of idea of what legislation you worked on, uh, what were your proudest accomplishments for the last session? Um, I'm really happy about the first session. I got in on day three and had to work really quickly to, to kind of find my uh, way there and uh, was able to pass um, legislation to support mental health supports for young people. Um, my first bill actually was a bill to address uh, youth homelessness and foster care, and which we have a lot in South King County, to provide more academic supports. And I was also able to pass a bill to um, start a task force that currently is working uh, with members of our community, like Anthony Shoecraft, uh, Dr. Maxine Mims, and others. And we're putting together our state's first ever African-American black history curriculum, which will be implemented in a few years. So um, that's something I'm really excited about. Uh, to get to work on. And then I uh, was also able to, to get some support to uh, start a maritime high school in South King County, which would be a pre-apprenticeship program in the, in the trades. And, and that's quite, yeah. So I, I also called you about another uh, training uh, kind of deal we were working on. It's uh, being, a coalition being put together right now. And it's working with uh, some of the folks in technology uh, who are from India or, or uh, Indian ancestry. Uh, so we're doing some work together about getting some training for uh, the uh, African descent of the United States enslaved. And they said if a high school diploma, eight to 10 weeks, these folks are ready to go to a technology job. And I'm glad to see that our community is finally being focused on for those kind of opportunities. Now, in, in terms of the future, what do you see? We don't have, a, and I had this conversation with Jamila just a minute ago, uh, we don't have, we haven't had affirmative action in 22 years, but yet white males receive 95 to 97% of all of the state contracts. Now, it seems to me if that was black folks getting 95 to 97% of the contracts, there would be a lawsuit filed or some kind of claim. How can we justify uh, one group receiving not the lion's share, but damn near the whole pie? You're absolutely right. You can't justify that. And I think um, for the first time, uh, COVID has just highlighted the impacts that have already existed in our communities for a long time that we see when it comes to economic development and mobility and our community having access. And so we're going to have to really address this system that has been disproportionate in a lot of ways to the black community, the brown community, but really for our community, unequal access to, to uh, contracts. So I, I really think we need to, to reinstate um, or, or pass a bill to reverse I-200, and I know that our members of Color Caucus, our Black Members Caucus, uh, we're working on getting advocacy together for that. Um, it's also one of the priorities for uh, Black Lives Matter, for King County Equity Now, and so uh, we're definitely going to have this on the top of our radar this year. Um, and finally, I'll just say, when it comes to, um, you know, all of the, the systems in our, in our state, racial justice is needed to be at the forefront of that, and I think that for the first time, we're going to be able to start to restore some of what was lost in the last, you know, 30 years, 40 years longer when you think about what's been taken from our community by not having these policies in place. Well, we just got uh, one facility restored, even though I must admit, I don't know why King County Equity Coalition didn't want us to have the building. It is African-American <laughs> led, 
but uh, yeah. the, the, the Central District Community Preservation Development Authority, I know you voted for the legislation in the House last year. So anyway, it is law now. And also uh, 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 the, the title of the property was transferred to the board uh, on October 16th. And it was gonna take some renovation, but it will be a hub for uh, training once again. It originally was brought to uh, Seattle by late Reverend Dr. Samuel Berry McKinney as the Seattle Opportunities Industrialization Center. That happened in the 60s when there was a commitment to African-Americans, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights of 65, the fair, and then there was money to train our people. Uh, I mean, to buy them food, to provide transportation, to provide them counseling, everything they needed to succeed in a training process. And we're gonna be duplicating that, I'm gonna tell you about that. But uh, that building has been returned from SOIC back in those days, back to, uh, Black control under the uh, leadership of the Central District Community Preservation and Development Authority. It'll be known as the Reverend Dr. Sam, the McKinney Center for Community and Economic uh, Development. And we have talked with the folks from the Port of Seattle Sound Transit, uh, folks down in the OMWBE. And so there'll be a place where folks can also get the training and the tutoring they need. And there's also be a pre-apprenticeship program there as well, led by Reverend Dr. Reverend Ricky Willis, Lawrence Willis, mm. let me give him, I call him Ricky, but Lawrence, Rev. Pastor Willis. So those things are happening. That's in the central area, but we know our population is now in South King County. And yeah. uh, so I want to make sure, that's why I was going to talk to you offline about uh, possibly ha having one of these, and, and the tech companies will be providing the instructors. And it's also my understanding, I hope they don't get angry, but they said these can also be, the courses can be certified by the UW School of Business. So uh, it is folks from uh, leaders in the technology industry right now who are from India or Indian descent, uh, have who have a certain group has made a commitment to work with African descent from the United States enslaved and making sure <clears throat> that our folks are trained in this technology because you know they pay a sizable amount of money. So I wanna make sure that I get with you to make sure we have something set up down there as well because you're in touch with so many, and you don't need a high, you don't need a, uh, your credentials. If you just have a high school diploma and a, a little bit of literacy, and the program will last eight to ten weeks, four hours a day, and uh, you'll be ready to get a job with a tech company right away. Or even if you have a record or a problem with the law, you have the skills to work for a subcontractor, start your own business. So I would definitely That's want to talk to you about that one, sir. Yes, absolutely. That sounds that sounds like what we need. So what are your plans for this upcoming session after the election, sir? What are your priorities going to be? Well, um, I've, I've been named to the police leadership team on the House side. So uh, that means that <laughs> that's taking up a lot of my time right now. Um, so I have a, I'm working on a comprehensive package of legislative reforms uh, when it comes to policing and law enforcement, uh, working on around our state's use of force standards, uh, which obviously I-940 had its fight last year. But we need to make sure that we tighten up this standard especially around justifiable homicide, because currently right now, what we saw in Philadelphia um, right. last week, um, under mm. our law, he would be able to get off on that as well in Washington State. So we need to tighten up that standard. Um, I'm also working on a police tactics bill to ban chokeholds, no-knock warrants, tear gas, and to begin the process of declining militarization in our police when it comes to the procurement of military surplus equipment from the federal government. And we need to start looking like our communities and, and feeling safe in our communities again. And I think this process will help with that. So I'm excited about those police reform issues. Um, I'm very interested in continuing the work around housing and preventing 
unjust evictions across the state of Washington. Um, in federal way, we passed the um, Stable Homes Initiative to prevent unjust evictions, but we need to make sure that goes statewide. And then finally, I'll say economic development, economic mobility for our young people. How do we get them into pathways into these high-demand jobs like the medical profession, the skilled trades, tech, and so on? So these are some of the issues I'll be working on this year. Well, it sounds like we might be working on one of them together because uh, we folks have made a commitment to our community to uh, uh, install this training. There will be advisory boards already. People have agreed to be on that and their board of directors being established. So I will be in touch with you to make sure that uh, this word and this opportunity gets out to your, your constituents in federal way because I know you're very active in the community and you would be the best recruiting me mechanism we could have because anytime young folks are looking at success, somebody that not an OG like me, but a younger brother like you, then they're going to get inspired. But the people we've been talking to, like the Dominique Davis, who runs Community Passageways, uh, mm -hmm. he was very excited about it. And I think he was going to be a candidate for the board. And uh, yeah, I know that he also works with a, a lot of young, younger uh, men and women in the city. And the fact that uh, when you have to get that skill, even if you had problems with the law, commit yourselves to that training and i guarantee you and the people that tell me that if you get that training you will have a job somewhere because i guess uh, microsoft alone has like seven hundred thousand subcontractors and mm -hmm. those subcontractors don't have the same standards uh you know i don't care if you check the box or not if you can do the job they want you and it's also about a lot of people to uh, be able to work from home and not be on the front line all the time. Although there's nothing wrong with having a job. Don't get me wrong now. But I'm just saying we need to be participating in every aspect of uh, the economy. I couldn't agree more. This, this is definitely the year to do it. I appreciate your work on that. So, okay, then, uh, <clears throat> Representative Jesse Johnson, we really appreciate you. You've been doing too. And I got a lot of people know that, and you mentioned earlier, but you were the youngest ever to serve on the Federal Way City Council? That's, that's correct. And now I'm the, the youngest in the legislature this year. <laughs> so I, I, I guess I keep taking that record from someone. Well, pretty soon you might be the youngest governor ever having the state of Washington. <laughs> you never know. I, I won't, I'll leave that option open down the road. Yeah, that or, you know, I'm just saying, I know you're going to do an outstanding job in the House, and I think we need to do that first. And then I think your work there will kind of pretty much dictate and you're on your way, I have, to, I have to say. I'm very proud of your accomplishments, and uh, I wish you the best of luck on uh, on Tuesday. And uh, you probably got a, a feeling already of how it's going to go. You do sound real upbeat. So, uh, Jesse Johnson, thank you very much, man, and I uh, wish you the best, okay? Thank you so much, Brother Ryan. Thanks for all your work, and everyone get out and vote. Get your ballots in. Thank you. That's right. Thank you very much. Okay, uh, before we close out, I want to give a shout out to this brother. His name is Brian Cole. He has cold cleaning, and he came through the house and did the carpets. They were a mess. And let me tell you something. You're going to be stuck in the house for a, quite a while. You might as well get them carpets clean. Call Cold Cleaning at 206-721-7723. 206-721-7723. Get the carpets clean because you're going to be stuck in the house for the next eight or nine months. Thanks, Eric. We'll talk with you again next Thursday. Thank you.